Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. And today... Uh, we have Peter Maguire on the line from the United States, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Tie Stick, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade. Hi, Peter. How are you? Oh, great. Fantastic. So, uh, as I was saying before in the pre-interview, um, we might just start off with a, a background about you and how you came to write uh, what i got to say is the most fun book I've read since I've been doing these recordings. Oh, well, thank you. Um I grew up in Southern California, and uh, I was a lifeguard there. Uh, I moved to Australia in 1984, uh, hoping to be a, a high-level competitive surfer, but coming up against the Ant Corrigans and the other great Australian surfers of that era, I quickly learned it wasn't going to happen and went to college, uh, earned my PhD um, in history, and became a world crimes investigator in Cambodia and stumbled across the confessions of uh, four Americans captured and killed by the Khmer Rouge. Everyone suspected uh, that they were CIA agents, but I knew that they were Thai marijuana smugglers, having grown up in um, Malibu and at a time when the Thai marijuana fleet came every single spring. And we, you know, waited for it like the arrival of the Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah. Yep. Um, you start off with a book with great stories about what it was like in the surfing community uh, in the West Coast when you were a kid. Do you want to explain that yeah. to everyone? Because I think it's an important part of building this culture um, before we get into the criminal aspects of your book. No, I think, you know, it was a very, it was a harsh code. We grew up in a very localized area, and uh, you were expected to carry your weight and behave and accord yourself to certain standards that, you know, not only were you uh, supposed to live by, but you were supposed to maintain if others didn't. And, um, you know, there were similar standards in Hawaii and Australia, 
and uh, you know, it was a it was a subculture that was basically ready-made for the marijuana smuggling industry because it was network marketing at its best, and so. Um, surfers, even, you know, Mike Hinson from Endless Summer learned very early on that a few nervous hours would make for, um, you know, months and months of Endless Summer. And so marijuana and surfing kind of went hand in hand. And um, everywhere there was good waves, there was marijuana. Yeah. And the lifestyle itself was <laughs> extremely laid back by the looks of it. It was... Um, Every every small beach had its own particular culture, and you're even talking about how you you as a young surfer were taking on some things that the older surfers looked down on, like uh, leg ropes, for example. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, coot course. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I talk in the book about um, you know, getting this great tube ride and coming out of it and thinking I was you know the greatest thing since sliced bread. And this old weather-beaten local paddling up and staring at me, and saying, uh, "Oh, that's great! Oh, oh, you got a, you got a leash? No, no, no! Don't get me wrong. I think those are great. Every kook should have." <laughs> and uh, and that was, you know, that was the world we grew up in. You know, the stand-up paddle boards. God help them. I mean, they would <laughs> they would have been crucified on those on those sweeper paddles and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how much it's changed, you know. Australia, uh, it had its own idiosyncrasies. I would say it was a much more democratic surf culture. If you were a great surfer and you were a dickhead, you were still a dickhead, which yeah. I liked about it. Yep. And uh, it was great. I mean, it was great. I just, uh, I, you know, the days I spent with, you know, Aunt Corrigan and Matt Elk, uh, and that group down at Bondi and some of the others up in Byron, you know, I won't ever forget. I suppose part of the difference in culture here was there are a lot fewer surfers for a lot more beach as opposed to in the U.S. Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah, just, you know, surf spots that my Aussie friends would drive by, you know, my eyes were popping out of my head, ah, nobody surfed that, ah, that's, you know, and, yeah, it was it was just amazing yeah but the lifestyle of a priority of surfing and everything else had to fit around that created a <laughs> the incentive to actually build up this big pile of cash in a one-off transaction that allowed you to go back to the lifestyle well the irony of it was when i first went to australia in 84 you know and bob hawk was in office my buddies were living large off the dole yeah. and like shaping a few boards, glassing a few boards, but they all had houses and cars and went to the pub every night. Yeah. So it was, it was a generation, about a half a generation past us. And there were some heavy characters in Byron. And I remember some of my older friends saying, whatever you do, just stay away from them. And, yeah. uh, you know, as it's a well-established fact, much of the early Thai marijuana came into Australia. And, yep. and it was such an easy, unprotected, vast amount of coastline. And um, still is. Initially, they, yeah, they would come into Darwin and drive it across, and that was a standard scam. You know, bring the Thai sticks into Darwin, load them up, drive them to Sydney. Um, and then it just got much, much bigger than that. And, uh, 
you know, you have the, you know, Murray Riley, the New South Wales detective, and the famous Ocker Nostra. Um, just remarkable stories. You couldn't even make them up. Mm. Mm. All this still goes on today. It's just slightly better protection yeah. than it was before, but you wouldn't call it effective. Um, as you can probably see, we have the, the plane they're searching for at the moment, and they said there's 12 Australian planes looking for them. That's probably all of our planes. So now's the time to yeah, exactly. drugs into Australia. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's no one left. Well, and, that, and that's the funny part. I mean, the, the, you know, the Australian Coast Guard, or I don't know what the official name was, but they had, they had two patrol boats yeah. from, you know, from the Northwest Territories. To WA or something yeah, the, like that. Further, and, further than Vancouver and, to Baja, California, <laughs> and it's two boats. Yeah, and yeah, and so you know these guys were sliding right in. A few of them would put, they'd put the tie sticks in weighted barrels that they would uh, attach to the keel, bring them into Darwin, and then offload them, and then you know drive them around. Um, but you know there's. And just remarkable stories that nobody's even gotten to the bottom of, like, you know, Nugan Hand and yeah. Ocean Shores and, yeah. uh, you know, some there. there's that famous uh, valley where the, you know, Italian immigrants in Australia moved. Yes, in Orange. It's called Orange is the town, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the yeah, um, Andrangheta, yeah. It's, and there was the the murder of the one Australian anti-pot guy that kind of kicked the whole thing off. I forget the year of that. Yep, that was in the um, 70s, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's, you know, and then this is it. I mean, this is the same story that we're seeing throughout my book and in America today even, and that is it's a Pyrrhic victory. It is that mm-hmm. you win the battle and you lose the war, and that. You know, in America, okay, marijuana, they made some gains on it, but it was replaced by methamphetamine, and now we have this absolute scourge of pharmaceutical drugs where more people are dying from that than almost anything else in America, and it's illegal, so people sort of turn a blind eye to it. You know, in Australia, you know, you've got, you know, you get replacement drugs far worse than, you know, the original article. Oh, yeah. We definitely have exactly the same problem with meth. Meth has exploded here. And it's, yeah. Uh, the, the motorcycle gangs are pretty heavily involved in that as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a vile... It's a vile... Ask any cop what they'd rather deal with, and they just roll their eyes, you know? They want to deal with pot smokers. You know, meth heads are scary and dangerous. Yep. And, you know, the DEA, the DEA guys I interviewed in the U.S., they said, look, you know, these guys were, these were, to quote, fun cases to work. Yep. These guys were smart. They, they traveled to nice places. And above all, quote, you didn't have to worry about them pulling a gun on you. No. And, and, you know, they were totally nonviolent. The Australian trade, not so much. I mean, you get the Mr. Nice gang mm-hmm. and, and the most, uh, the most horrific thing about Australia is the, the police, especially in Queensland, they make huge gains on marijuana in the early 70s, and then it's replaced with China white heroin. Yeah. And you have, um, you know, a, a generation of Gold Coast superhero surf stars just decimated. And yes. nobody is more articulate 
and talking about that than Robert Bartholomew. Mm-hmm. And Robert Bartholomew's book is, is heartbreaking where he talks about losing, I don't know how many friends, but it's, you know, it's something absurd, you know, six to ten friends in a couple of months from heroin. It's, and, it's, and it's the this, surfing equivalent of the AIDS invasion in the 80s, where AIDS was decimating yeah, the know, arts community and this was decimating the surfing community. Yeah, and what's interesting as a Californian, I heroin was something, I was around all kinds of drugs and everything, but uh, heroin was just ooh, beyond the pale. Nobody ever, you know, ever thought about that and uh, or even considered doing it. And when I got to Australia, I was surprised that it was uh, more common. It wasn't that common, but it was around. And then, uh, yeah, it... it you know, it was much more prevalent down there than, you know, in California Yeah. when I was growing up. And look at your proximity to the Golden Triangle and all that. It only makes sense. Mm. That's right. That's right. And we, we had a very large um, Vietnamese population that came over at the end of the Vietnam War with all those connections ready-made that allowed... Oh, yeah. To, no, to no, no. Here. You're... I mean, yeah, the... the um, I think the book is The Crimes of Patriots, mm. written by a former Wall Street Journal reporter about Nugenhand and the Ocker Nostra and all that. And I, I more or less just, I looked at that book and I went off his footnotes and got the newspaper articles from Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian and stuff. And, uh, my goodness. I mean, that is, that is just a book waiting to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll put my hand up for that one. I'll, I'll start on that. I've got a, got a couple others to finish off, but I'll, I'll jump on that. So, um, while Australia is a definite part of the story, the story actually begins in California. And the reason why Australia gets into the story is because the story moves away from the United States to Southeast Asia, partly as a result of the hippie trail and partly as a result of people mm. trying to even avoid um, conscription to the Vietnam War. Right. Yeah, well, and I'll, I mean, go ahead. No, no, you're right. I was going to say, do you want to explain how that actually happened? Well, I I mean, um, you know, the interesting real Thai marijuana trail is is that in the very beginning, you know, it was relatively small loads, you know, not much more than a few hundred pounds. And it would typically go from Thailand to Bali, where it would then sail from Bali to northwest Australia. Mm. Because that was the short, basically the shortest route, and then and then that's where it would, you know, transit once again. But um, yeah, Australia was always just the easiest hop to bring a load of ties. So uh, it was, you know, part of this equation from day one. And then Australians, um, interesting as well. There were Australian workers, I think oil workers in South Africa in the late 60s that were smuggling, you know, some excellent, you know, world-class Durban poison and that kind of pot. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the, but, but what's funny when you look at Australia, the, uh, the seizure numbers for Australian customs are staggering compared to the United States. Like in 1969, you know, they're still under a thousand pounds for a whole year, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so they're just so behind. No, and that's people right. can, yeah, slip it right through. They don't even know what they're looking for, you know? Well, I'm, I'm working on a book on corruption 
in my state, Queensland, uh, and in amongst the material, they're talking about we're taking corruption from drug dealers. And they said, we went to a briefing in the, the 1980s saying that drugs are coming to Queensland, and they just laughed at them. Because even in the 80s, they didn't believe that there were many drugs around. And as you're saying, in the community, people were dying from heroin, but the police were completely ignorant of the whole situation. Well, speaking of Queensland, Yeah. <laughs> For the ones who, people who don't know, you know, we refer to, to my state as the deep north, just like they have the deep south in the U.S. It's uh, yeah, and I, a very and similar yeah, situation. I'm speaking to you from North Kakalaka, as we like to call North Carolina. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I guess I felt comfortable in Queensland, so I moved here. But, um, no, I remember the 4X beer and all that, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, are you the, Mar- you're the, you're the blues, not the maroons, right? We're the maroons. State yes, Queensland state. for the football team. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, state, yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I've, I've rooted for the maroons in the state versus state, mate versus mate match. Yep. Yep. And Billy Connolly, the comedian, um, loves to tell a story of the one time he did a concert in Queensland in the 1970s and how the police beat him up because he looked funny. And, uh, that was. <laughs> Very much the way yeah. the police work. Very professional organisation. Uh, but that that movement from Thailand to Bali to Australia and then on to America as well, it's tied to the fact that mm. not because there was anything special about Bali other than the fact that that's where the surfers were. They were going yeah. there. So Bali didn't have any special characteristic other than it was a nice place to surf and a cheap place to live. Yeah, but then, like I said, it's a straighter shot down. I think it's the sea of, uh, what is it, the the Beagle Sea or something. It's not, it's not that, it's a pretty easy run, you know, uh, compared to Thailand or, you know, any other, you know, they get to, uh, first world Western country Mm. where they can, you know, sell it off to Australian organized crime or whatever. And um, it was an easy day, you know, compared to getting it to another transshipment point or whatever. They could unload it all there. Yeah, yep. And what effect did the Vietnam War have on the trade? Well, well, you know, much like we were talking about before, same thing, Purist history. We have American soldiers drafted going over there, anything to pass their time. Most of them are in the rear echelon. They're not in combat. And so, of course, they smoke pot. And then, uh, you know, the U.S. government's under great congressional pressure to, you know, to cut down on the pot. Once Nixon gets elected, he wants the marijuana stepped on, and he does. And the net result is they have major gains in marijuana smoking, cutting all that out of the military. But South Vietnam's flooded with China white you know, number, no, what is it, number four heroin, and, uh, you know, 90-something percent purists. So, you know, the American soldiers in Vietnam and Thailand get completely uh, strung out on heroin so pure, all they need to do is smoke it, and they get a habit. And that really begins the down spiral for the U.S. and the Vietnam War. I mean, um, so many middle-class, American farm boys are going home junkies that it, it comes to the attention of the Senate and the president. Yep. There's a great story so about back. the president sending one of his envoys over to look into 
the drug situation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, exactly. And they just, they were, you know, at least he was honest enough to admit it, that guy, you know, yeah. um, where he said, yeah, it's not a, I forgot the exact words. <laughs> it was like, it's not a problem. It's a condition or something, yeah. but it's just so far gone, you know, just, and, and, you know, and then you have generals and stuff saying, gosh, if I could just get rid of this heroin, I'd buy all the pot in the entire Mekong Basin <laughs> to get these guys off this shit. And so that's where you love the military because they're, they're honest. You know, they've got these guys, young kids, they're watching them get fucked up and strung out. And it's, um, it's an American tragedy, you know? Mm. But the surfers weren't involved in that trade, so they're, they're sort of on the periphery of that, because really, I suppose, reading your story and then reading other people's uh, books about drug smuggling, these weren't guys who were on a regular deal. They would sort of do a run, make some money, and then go, oh, I think I need more money, I'll do another run. Is that more accurate? Yeah, I think, you know, you have a bunch of surfers that initially are doing it to finance a lifestyle and um, you know they make their big hit and they go surf for a while and they have a great you know they have a great deal they they work Thailand three months four months a year they're in Bali and Australia and Hawaii the rest of the time um, but then you know the, the profits and everything else get ridiculous to where this stuff selling for two thousand dollars a pound in the 70s and they, you know, everybody gets greedy and surfing becomes less important than, um, you know, than making a giant fortune. And some of these guys made fortunes. And, uh, you know, the, the, the money corrupts it all, as it always does. <laughs> yeah. Whereas at the other end, in, in the Thai villages, for example, they were just growing this stuff without any moral or legal preconceptions that there was an issue here. No, this is a medicinal herb that's in every northeastern Thai garden, and you know they put it in chicken soup, and they don't even really smoke it. So, you know, some do, but it's kind of an old man or a lazy person's drug. It's not. It's just not anything. It's not taken even seriously. The Thais were baffled when the Americans, you know, got such a hard on about pot. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, uh, if I remember correctly, the demand outstripped supply at one stage. There just weren't enough yeah. ties growing it. No, 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 for most <laughs> of it, because it's not, it's not a, um, it's not Colombia, it's not Mexico, it's um, a finite crop, and there are various fixers and procurers in place. When it's gone, it's gone, and you have to wait till the next year. Yeah. And um, and that goes on for a very long time. Towards the end, others, you know, get it a little tighter. But, you know, the real A-plus pie, when it's, you know, by far the, you know, best pot in the world is about 75 to about 78. And then it, you know, it creeps into the early 80s here and there, but it's, it, it starts getting polluted by bad commercial tie where they're just, you know, trying to make money. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you want to talk about Mike Ritter, your co-author and his, his um, story, how he got into it and his eventual 
uh, well, demise, I was going yeah. to say. <laughs> sure. Well, I, um, you know, as I had said earlier, I found the confessions of the four Americans at Tool Slang Prison in Cambodia. I suspected they were pot smugglers. I uh, used to surf um, amazing right point uh, down in Baja. And as I was down there, I spoke to a couple of old surfers and was telling them about the story. They said, oh, yeah, we knew a couple of those guys who were killed in Cambodia. And this one guy, Mike Ritter, yeah, he really knows. He knows the whole story. Okay. And uh, I've heard that many times in my profession. And um, a couple of years later, I finally met Ritter, and I gave him the names. And within about less than two weeks, he came back with basically the whole story, who they were working with, the names of the boats, everything. And I kind of went, wow. And... Um, and he, Ritter, had been a smuggler from the Hippie Trail in the 60s all the way through Thailand uh, in the beginning in the 70s all the way to till about 85 he retired. And, um, you know, I trained him in oral history and history and taught him how to interview people and got him into Columbia University's oral history project where they teach you how to interview. And he became one of the best. Uh, one of the best historians I've ever met and uh, really began to piece this whole story together from all different angles. And so his focus was mainly the smugglers where I handled Khmer Rouge, um, you know, Southeast Asian police and military that intersected with the uh, marijuana smuggling trade, um, DEA, uh, police, all that, and and it, it was a great collaboration. Mm. And he himself is has moved through the career, as you said. He's uh, why did he leave the the trade? Because it got too criminal. Um, he was an old hippie surfer, and basically, you know, he was he found himself dealing with you know gangsters and. Uh, you know, it, he he avoided it. He didn't uh, really consort with them or co-conspire with them, but he just saw the trade after the DEA busted the hippies and the surfers and all that, um, suddenly got flooded with serious gangsters, and uh, he didn't, didn't want to deal with them. Um, and so in, I think, 86, he finally had a big successful load, made about five million cash, retired. Um, and then in 2003, I think, uh, the DEA and Customs and IRS and all that um, indicted him, and he wound up doing a little under two years of prison time. Yeah. It took a while to catch him, though. Um was that the DEA working backwards through informants or through old files, or how did they actually come to catch you? No, you know, I, I, you know, ironically, it was barely the DEA, and and you know, we have a narrator in our book, uh, DEA agent Jim Conklin, mm. who's been one of a very generous uh, supporter of the book, and you know, allowed us to interview him at length and this and that. And Agent Conklin actually um, 
you know, really tried to help Ritter. And um, you begin to see a rift in the kind of pre-9-11 DEA and the post-9-11 DEA. And, um, you know, they kind of equated Ritter's situation to where, oh, you know, he's getting offshore money, money, you know, um, money laundering equals terrorism. So his case became more of a customs IRS case than a drug case. It was about money. Mm. And And that's what they wanted. They wanted money. They didn't want information. By the time they got him, everybody had been busted and wrapped up, but they wanted cash. Yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty gross, to be honest. You know, it was pretty it was pretty crap. And that's the next book is called Tie Stick Two: Law and Disorder, and it's about what I describe as this casino culture of jurisprudence, where you come in and you make a deal with the U.S. attorney, and you rat on this guy and you rat on that guy, and you know, and it's it's a joke. It's totally it's totally subjective. And some of these guys were good hustlers, and they got in and sang a good song to the DA and the judge, and they got off for nothing. And yeah. then the, you know the guys who actually held their mud didn't talk, didn't rat on anybody. They made examples. So. Yeah, well, that's the story of all great illicit organizations, the ones who can hold the line are pretty hard to touch. Even I, I do work with, uh, on, not with, but on corrupt police. And um, yeah, it's the denunciation network, as uh, Carlo Morselli from, from Montreal says, you know, when one rolls, there's a pattern to how the rest of them roll out. It's, it's very fragile. It's a brittle sort of thing. If it all holds together, everything's yeah. fine. As soon as one goes, the rest are going to roll out eventually because they have to compete to be yep. the one who's going to get protection. They won't all get protection. Yeah, it's the classic prisoner's dilemma. Mm. That's right. Now, you know? <laughs> what, one of the, the most interesting things I've found about quite a few of the books I've read of the trade in marijuana is the lack of violence in the trade. I know yeah. we've we got the, the exceptions yeah. here in Australia with the Mr. Asia syndicate, but certainly uh, even Mr. Asia, when they were purely dealing with the marijuana, they still didn't have the violence then. So is it just the nature of the people who were involved in it that the, there was no violence, or was there just so much product that they didn't need to have violent competition? No, it was the nature of the trafficker. Um, these, you know, these people got... You know, at a certain point, they're dealing with, you know, serious Thai gangsters and Shanghai Sheks, you know, former leaders. And they're basically saying, here's a suitcase worth more than that, more than that entire boat. Why won't you put this suitcase on that boat? You know, and it was yeah. still the smack. And they would say, no, 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 you know, that's death. Those are those are death drugs. We don't touch those. And they were, you know, they really held the line. But what happened in Australia was you basically had the syndicates strong-arming the pot dealers and saying, you either sell this heroin or, you know, we're coming for you. Yeah. And and I think Australia was just so innocent at that time to drugs and surfers were bold and brash and they thought they could handle anything. The American Thai smugglers were, you know, very, very reticent to smuggle anything but pot. And um, we see, you know, we see that change by the early 80s. The DEA and Thai police start cracking down successfully on 
marijuana, but then, you know, the heroin trade explodes. Um, and, you know, the heroin trade creeps into Australia, uh, but in the United States, it remains somewhat separate. And what really brings the, the end of this period of, of the, the so-called surfer drug trader? Is it just that they there was one generation of them who grew up and they weren't getting replaced, or is it the market itself that sort of ends this type of trade? Yeah, it gets it gets much harder. It's basically, you know, it's yet another Pyrrhic victory, and that the, you know, the police get rid of the hippies and the surfers who are nonviolent, mm-hmm. and the gangsters and true criminals replace them, and so, you know, suddenly they're dealing with you know former military guys running 200 foot boat filled with you know 20 tons to 40 tons and you know it's a whole different game and they're coming to the United States I mean by then Australia um, is is a secondary you know place to bring weed is it that the surfers were actually being caught because they were so lackadaisical they didn't have that criminal professionalism so they were easier to catch was they, were they the low hanging yeah they, they were they were softer they you know the real you know the true gangsters um and there weren't that many of them but you know they they wouldn't talk they would they would accepted prison time as basically a uh, occupational hazard and um the surfers weren't used to that they weren't banking on going to prison and so um you know, it just, they, you know, they got rid of the hippies, they got rid of the surfers, and the gangsters came in and played a whole different ballgame. So maybe the police themselves were chasing the surfers because they were the easier targets, and as you say, the less violent ones, so your job oh, yeah. was a lot more yeah, fun well, if you were dealing with surfers than dealing with a Mexican cartel equivalent. Oh, yeah, and, you know, by the end, they are you know, they're wanting weapons, they're wanting things that typically hadn't been serviced in the time marijuana industry. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but you see, you know, some pretty serious people by the end of it. I mean, the, the, the big load that ends the Southeast Asian marijuana trade in the United States is 72 tons on a single boat. Yeah. Uh, you know, cap, captained by a former Green Beret. So, you know, and the weed had been loaded by the Vietnamese military out of Denae. So, you know, we're talking about true globalism. Yeah, yeah. So in one sense, they were <laughs> easy to catch. In the other sense, they were pushed out of the market because they just, competition was stronger. Who were, oh, they, yeah. sell, who were yeah. they selling to once they got it to America? So who was buying it? The good stuff would stay on the West Coast. And then the, you know, the less good stuff would go to the Midwest and the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. They didn't know any better. That's right. And yeah. you, you're discussing the Booker group who um, were living on a ranch, who were living an alternative lifestyle that uh, some of the yeah, circles the brother, had come into contact with yeah, the, the Brotherhood. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about them. Oh, you know, they, you know the, the thing about the Brotherhood that's fascinating is I would call them a true utopian movement, you know, that fits into history with the Shakers or the Mormons or the, you know, I mean, these these were true believers, and they basically set themselves up as a religion in 1968 that used LSD as 
as a you know a sacrament as per the instructions of Timothy Leary, and they successfully imported mere, more hash and LSD in the United States than any group in the '60s and early '70s. And you know they basically were a nonprofit organization. They did not make anywhere near the money that they could make, and they basically believed that this was a they was a religious sacrament, and they were you know true believers as you know as it's called. Yeah, and the big names of the counterculture were there. They were participants. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh no, they were, you know, these were the, the, the elite of that counterculture. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix would go and stay and party with them and shag their girls. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, they had a good run. Yeah. Well, they were having fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, You've already mentioned you, you, you're doing a, a second book. Um, what drove you to do this? Was it the frustration with that I've heard through the conversation about the way that things are running now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, this for me, I, I, you know, my real bread and butter is I'm a professional historian, war crimes investigator. My books are on the law and theory of war. That's what I teach. Um, at a university, but I feel like, um, you know, any number of us through this period kind of need to come clean as we're watching our nation get decimated by pharmaceutical drugs and a bunch of nonsense about marijuana. And, um, you know, I don't see marijuana as great uh, cure of everything as some of its advocates do, but but, you know, given where we are with pharmaceutical drugs and deaths by pharmaceutical drugs in the United States, um, it's time, you know, that people begin to look at this in a more reasonable way. I mean, it's, it's absurd, really. And what do you know, your contacts think about the, the new laws in the U.S. now, um, like Colorado and other states? Well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it, as I said, Previously, um, United States is basically where we were in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War, where we're looking for a graceful exit, really where there is none. And the deaths in America from pharmaceutical drugs and from these synthetic opiates have reached a place where you know, this is no longer political. It's it's just you know, it's off the charts, and enough yeah. uh, enough. Okay, well, look, we might wrap it up there. Thank you very, very much for all your time. Sorry about our communication breakdown there in the middle. Oh no, sweat. But yeah, um, yeah uh, Peter McGuire, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for discussing your book Tie Stick, which, as I said to everyone, I've read a lot of books while I've been doing these these podcasts, but yours was certainly the most fun of any of the ones I've read. So I really enjoyed it. Well, that's a great compliment. And uh, I look forward to getting back to Australia soon and hope to have a pint with you. Yes, in definitely. RSL uh, at your choosing. Oh, I think we'll choose the Byron Bay one. Just out of sentimentality. All right. I, I'm very comfortable there. Excellent. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Okay. 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.